we have all had the experience in our lives of walking into a conversation midway. And coming into a conversation midway, maybe you turn the corner and people are in the middle of a conversation, and something gets said that makes you say, what? And then the, and then the people having the conversation say, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand, we were talking about this. We've all had that, right? And you think, I can't believe you just said that. They say, no, 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 no. you missed the beginning. Right? We've all had these conversations. This morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 5. And if I just start reading without giving you the context for what came before Ephesians chapter 5, your throats are going to close up, and your hearts are going to go into your feet. And you're going to say, what? I'm supposed to do what now? And so we don't want to come into Paul's letter mid-conversation. We want to remember what, what uh, the flow of the letter is. Some of you have been here week in, week in and week out. Others of you are here this morning for the first time. But if you, whether you're here for the, this morning for the first time, and you're, I'm about to give you the context for Ephesians 5, or whether you've been here every week, uh, we need the gospel of God's beautiful, saving, rescuing grace, minus our merit, minus our contribution every time. Dr. David Tripp, uh, uh, David, Paul David Tripp, uh, has got a PhD in uh, psychology, doctorate of ministry from Westminster Seminary. He's authored 16 books, and he has a great phrase he uses to describe the problem of the church, and he calls us gospel amnesiacs. It doesn't mean that we actually forget the details of the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, died an atoning death, and was resurrected on the third day for our sin. It doesn't mean we've, we are amnesiacs to that. It means we live our lives with this gospel amnesia of everything that that infers. All of the power of the grace that's available to us. The rest in our hearts. We, we kind of live forgetting that. So Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are about what the gospel is. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 are about what the gospel does. We're dropping into the middle of what the gospel does. But Ephesians 1 to 3 say to you, you, if you have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, your sins are absolved, full stop. Your sin is forgiven, full stop. The assurance and the inheritance you have in Christ is yours, apart from works, apart from future contribution, apart from your ability or inability to keep God's law, full stop. Christ fulfilled God's law for you fully on the cross, full stop. The promises of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3 are yours and mine if our faith is in Christ, apart from our ability to pull off chapters 4 through 6. And it is understanding that that actually makes our hearts explode with the joy and, and, and being electrified with the scandalous grace of God that make us want to live to his glory in chapters 4 through 6. It is this beautiful grace of Christ in chapters 1 through 3 that make us want to live to the glory of the one who saved us in chapters 4 through 6. And now we come to Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness but not, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's Word. So as we come to understand Paul's letter and as we explode why this is beautiful news for us, the freedom that Paul is describing we're to live in, here's the sermon in a sentence. Christ justified us in grace so God could be our Father. The Spirit of Christ sanctifies us in grace so that more and more we imitate our Father. That's what Paul is getting at. Chapters 1 through 3, the justifying, scandalous, saving grace of Jesus Christ, apart from our works when we were dead in our sin, made God our Father. And now we've come to chapter 5, and we see that it's because of that, that the Spirit of Christ is now doing something in you and me to cause us want to more and more live to the glory and imitate our Father. So obedience here is not for earning. That's toxic. That's the book of Galatians. Our obedience to God is for imaging. I don't obey God, you don't obey God because we're trying to earn something from Him. We're actually trying to Im image Him. We're like little kids who put on their parents' shoes and they clump around the house because they're trying to be like their parent. Our obedience is us wanting to put on our dad's shoes and clump around this life and clump, clump around your house and clump around the place where you work and clump around the university campus and clump around wanting to just kind of imitate and be loving and be gracious like the one who saved you. Your obedience is not for earning. That was done. Christ alone. It's finished. It's over. There's no more conversation. Obedience that's not free from earning is slavery. That's Galatians. So Paul has already established that Christ's work is complete, and now he's saying, be imitators of God. So this word imitation, when you look at chapter 1, it says, be imitators. In the Greek, it doesn't, it doesn't mean duplication. It means likeness. So he's not putting this crushing burden on you to duplicate what Jesus did, you know. So he's not like, hey, um, you got to be another Christ. You know, the, you, the church is now the third Adam. There was the first Adam, and he screwed that up. And there was the second Adam, and he did everything perfectly. And now you're the third Adam, and you better do everything perfectly. 
No, that's not the flow of Paul's letters. That's not the flow of any of his letters. That's not gospel logic. That's an obedience that's about earning, and that's not what he's saying. He's like, that's done in Jesus. Now this is about imitating. This is now a, this is now a freeing and a liberating uh, thing. So what this imitation is, is it's an utter call to dependence. It's not a crushing burden for you to be independent. It's dependence on God, not you being independent little God. Dependent on the power and the grace of God, not you independently, hey church, Jesus did his part, now you gotta do yours, get out there, pitter-patter, let's get at her, you're all like, <laughs> no. It's not the flow of the letter, that's not the tone of the letter, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, this is good news, what Jesus did for you. Now put your dad's shoes on and clump around and enjoy it. This is how you live free. This is the picture of, of how you live free. So, our imitation our imitation of God, our obedience to God, it's always imperfect because as Christians, we are still sinners struggling with our sin. Yet, our obedience is always increasing because united to Christ, he calls us righteous. So our obedience is always imperfect and increasing. It's always imperfect because we're sinful, but it's always increasing because in Christ we're righteous. It's both. And so we live in this glorious place of repentance and humility the gospel gives you great confidence because you're okay before God because of what Jesus did. Confidence. But humility, because you're not any better than your neighbor. You're just forgiven. And you've got good news. But where that peace and that grace comes from. So you can live through the temporality uh, of this life without being uh, burdened by it because the gospel frees us in this way. And so the grace of God and the love of God and the closeness to God, that's our motive for imitating. That's what Paul's flow is here. Why would we be motivated to imitate? It's not earning. It's, it's because of the grace. It's because of his love. So your imitation of God, your imitation, your desire to say, how do I live out the truths of his law? It's not driven by guilt. It's driven by gratitude. If it was driven by guilt, it'd be because Jesus started something you have to finish. And if you're not holy enough, sanctified enough, this enough, that enough, then kind of all bets are off. So you're, basically everything you're doing is from guilt. The problem with doing things from guilt is now you loving the person next to you is not serving them because it's being motivated by you being okay with God, so it's actually self-serving. So guilt is a train wreck. It's gratitude. It's done in Jesus, therefore let's be imitators of Christ. And it's freeing. And so this is the flow of his letter. And so there's an, I'm not going to bother you with the Greek, but the other word in the Greek for what Paul is making contrast of the sons of God and the sons of disobedience sons and sons. And the reason why Paul is doing that is because he's trying to say there's a closeness of a relationship here. You used to be, this was your relationship, but now you're, you're adopted. God is your father. You don't have a judge over you. You have a father over you. And because of that relationship, you're now a son. So I'm going to quote Augustine here, who Augustine is the first century bishop in the church, wise, brilliant, gave us lots of doctrine on the Trinity and all these kinds of things that that, you know, served the church for generations. This is what Augustine says. He says, When we are sons of men, we do ill. When we are sons of God, we do well. Sonship infers an absolute necessity of imitation. It's vain to assume the title of son without any similitude of the father. But what, what he's trying to say is, the natural response of a little kid who, who, who is now God's little kid, is that little kid is going to want to put the shoes on and clump around. 
You're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to be literally clumping around. That's a good description of Christian sanctification. There's a lot of clumping. But it's happening, though. And more and more, we want to live to the glory of the one who saved us, but there's a lot of clumping. And so this is why when Paul says, you know, walk in love, we want to think, in verse 2 it says walk in love, we immediately think, well, that means walk in love towards your neighbor. And I need you to know something very important, though that is true and beautiful and good, and we do do that, which is actually where the rest of this text goes. Right here, the way that the Greek is constructed, what Paul is saying is you actually walk in love toward God. It's critical that you understand that because what Paul is saying is God loved you, all this grace came toward you, now your response to grace is to love the one that loved you. And the reason why Paul gives us that first is because when he gives us this huge laundry list of sin <laughs> that he just gave us, it's like, what's the motivation to not want to do any of those things? Because there's a reciprocal love back to the one that saved me. So he didn't say, like, okay, Jesus did his part, now you get out there and love your neighbor. Though we do that, and it, and it does get there. He doesn't start there. It's important because that's actually the fuel. So that instead of Jesus just being a model, Jesus is your motivation. So that's why that verse is constructed that way. And so Paul's basically saying, you love him because he first loved you, right? We get that in John 4, uh, 4 19. And so that's that, what that is in love. And that's why he, he or orders it that way. Because if he doesn't order it that way, then I'm always going to be struggling, and you and I do anyways, with our self-love, putting ourselves first. So instead of loving our neighbor, we're going to be saying, okay, whatever, whatever I have to do to make sure that I end up benefiting from this, I'll love you in that way. So that's where that big laundry, laundry list of sin came from, sexual immorality. Then he gives this huge sweeping statement. He just says, all impurity. You know, it's like when the doctor says to you, and stay off dairy. What? You know, it's like this massive, like, that's a lot of stuff. So Paul just does that. Paul does like, stay off dairy, right? stay off sin. Why does he do that? Because he's like, how do you love your neighbor? What's the most loving form of caring for the one uh, that, that, that's uh, in your life that's next to you, your neighbor? It's to not put yourself first, which is essentially humanly impossible, which is why he says, hey, look, walk in love toward God. Just stay in this place of, being thankful for the love of God in your life, and that's going to motivate something. And so this is how he structures his letter. So we actually begin with the love and the worship of God so that we don't make ourselves God. That's why he does that. Because it never benefits anybody when we make ourselves God. Right? Make sure that we're benefiting first. So that's why this is such good news. And so then he uses this phrase, he says, and we're supposed to love as Christ loved. And we're like, whoa, well, that's pretty crushing. Who can do that? Who has done that? Who is doing that? Kind of none of us. Perfectly. But depending on the day, all of us kind of do it imperfectly. And we want to do it more and more because of what the Spirit is doing in our hearts. But the reason why he gives this phrase, as Christ loved us, again, it reminds you of something. He's calling you, as a child, to love and obey and worship perfectly. It's impossible. But then he points you to Christ... God's child, if I could kind of try to use the parallel language, who did obey and love the Father perfectly. So you've got Christ who obeyed perfectly, worshipped perfectly, loved perfectly for you. So now you are free. So Paul now commands you and I to do the same thing, which let's face it, none of us are the righteousness of Christ, so we can't do that perfectly. But, but the motivation begins to drive to say, yeah, that much love, that much grace is continually poured to more me. 
how do I love my neighbor? That's what I want increasingly more and more to do. So he gives us the, the, the flow of this letter in this way. So that way, Christ's love and grace is not simply a model that instructs our new life. It's the motive that's propelling our new life. This is what he gives us. And that's why Ephesians doesn't start out in chapter 5 and verse 1. Can you imagine if there weren't four chapters of God's grace towards you before this? What if the letter of the Ephesus just started with, Imitate God. Okay. I'm done. I'm dead. Right. That's, that would be what it was. But that's not it. So Paul doesn't start with Christ as an example of how not to sin. He starts with Christ as the one who absolved your sin. Three chapters of your sins are absolved. Done. Grace. Now, in response to that great grace, love the one who poured it out on you. And then that's going to end up manifesting day to day like loving our neighbor. This is this great. This is what's going on. This is this great grace. As our love for God increases, our hatred for our sin <laughs> increases. As our love for God increases, our desire to want to sin decreases. That's the flow. This is how he's encouraging us. This is why it's good news. He's not just putting it on you like, hey, change yourself, change your own, change your own heart. You can't do that. And so that's why Paul gives us those two prayers earlier in Ephesians. So in verse, in verse 3, let's just touch on these things quickly. He talks about, he says, look, sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness. He says, look, don't let these things be named among you. Why would he do that? So I'm going to touch on this briefly. S sexuality is the conversation of our age. So I'm going to touch on it, but I'm not going to make the whole rest of the sermon about it because Paul says it in the same breath with covetousness. Right? He did. So let's just take a minute. What's, what's the common denominator of sexual immorality? Because Paul just, Paul just goes like this. He just drops it. He says, sexual immorality, and he uses this phrase, all impurity, and he says, covetousness. He says, don't, he just, he says, stay, don't, don't go there. Why would he say that? Because the common denominator of all of that is that we try and find fulfillment in something. We are driven by something, finding validation in something other than God. The common denominator of all those things is how do I get what I need to get in such a way that I benefit at everybody else's expense? That's covetousness, that's impurity, and that's sexual immorality, like in all, in all forms. So the, the, the historic scriptural uh, view of sexuality is what God gives us the picture in the garden. So you find that's what Paul wrote in the letter to Rome. He wrote that in Corinth. And then when Jesus talks about marriage in Matthew 19, they all go back to the garden. You've got a man and a woman in this covenant relationship, covenant committed relationship for life. And then sex lives there. Now, why is it so narrow? I mean, it's 2016. Should we redefine this? Should we change this? Do you have to... Should we? No, 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 no. The reason why it's so narrow is because this is God's picture, ultimate picture of human flourishing. And even more so than that, it's a picture, that, that covenant picture is a picture of how God loves. So what we don't want to do is say, well, you know, I, I look around the world and there's lots of divorce and there's lots of, lots of divorces touch lots of our lives. And you want to know something? There is grace for that. You are forgiven and absolved of that sin. That's the truth of the gospel. And so what we don't want to do is say, well, because there is, you know, 
marriage looks like this in 2016, we should redefine God's truth to reflect our experience. No, no, no. It's God's truth that actually should form how we understand our experience. It's the other way. We don't say, well, you know, everybody kind of, we have a hookup culture, so we should shift this so that if I, I know, I'm, we're kind of sleeping around and we're not married. And whatever, so why is this so narrow? Is God some sort of a cosmic killjoy? No, he's saying the way you can love a person the most, I mean the, the most, would be I am committed to you only, nobody else. I'm giving my, God is the ultimate romantic. And he's saying, I'm going to reserve this for you only. And regardless of what you do, I'm committed to you. That's how God loves us. Now, of course, our human hearts have limitation and can't and haven't and don't live that way, but that's still the picture of God's perfect human flourishing, right? So we don't re redefine it. We say, oh God, we let, it, we let it humble us. We say, thank you for our grace. We live for our lives. We say, would you reform my heart to this? This is the picture. And so enough about the sexual uh, uh, conversation. Let's talk about the covetousness. Because again, our culture... Uh, has a position where we would say, well, let's broaden that. Um, and what is the, in light of our Christian view, what is our response to those that don't share that sexual ethic? Love, respect, dignity. If you are here this morning and you, are, you have same-sex attraction, you struggle with same-sex attraction, or um, you, have some sort of, you identify with some sort of a different orientation, here's what I would encourage you with in, uh, through God's Word. You're not defined by any of those impulses. You're bigger, more beautiful, more complex than a sexual impulse, heterosexual or homosexual or any other. You're bigger than that. The culture says, well, this actually defines you. But God's word says it doesn't define you any more than covetousness would define somebody because it's in the same breath, right? So you don't say, I self-identify as a covetous person or I self-identify as a heterosexual or anything because it's broader, bigger, more beautiful. So what Paul is doing here is he's just saying all forms outside of what God would give um, is going to lead you to a place that does not lead to flourishing in your heart, your soul, your spirit. So on the covetous side, covetousness is nothing more than all of us living our lives driven by the created and needing the created to fulfill us. Needing something, the next, that next thing. That next outfit, those next shoes, that next business deal, the next car, the next house, the next, the next, the next. I mean, just in a constant, perpetual state of being dissatisfied, discontent. So I'm now covetousness. I'm now coveting because I am, I am, I am disillusioned with what I have because I've set up little gods and they're disappointing me. I've set up many messiahs and they can't deliver me. I've set up all these little self-salvation projects, and they all keep falling and crumbling, so I just, I need the next one. So Paul just puts this all together, and he's not guilt-tripping Ephesus, and I'm not guilt-tripping you. He's saying, that kind of bondage, Christ has freed you from. And now in order to enjoy your freedom, that, that freedom, that clarity of your soul, where you can just love your neighbor, and be content, and have true rest, it only comes in Christ alone. Because any other mini-Messiah is going to drive us back in whatever form. That's why he uses that middle phrase, all impurity. Right? He doesn't even define it. He just says, he says, you know what it is. Like I could say to KW Redeemer, you know what it is. You don't need me to do a 40-minute dissertation on sin so you can walk out of here you know, on your knees. <laughs> I am preaching God's law unapologetically because God's law breaks the legs of the sheep. 
But guess what? There's good news. All of us walk out of here on the shoulders of the shepherd. And so we need God's law for us to go, yeah, you know what? My heart can orient in such a way that I'm trusting in all this stuff. But you know what? Christ has done it all. So Paul is calling them to say, hey, look, God already saved you out of this. And now you get to enjoy living to the glory of his freedom uh, apart from that. And so we don't want to consider anything that Paul is saying now. It's like, well, we should redefine it. It's 2016. It was just as offensive the day he wrote this. Have you studied ancient Greece? Yeah, never mind ancient Greece. Greece today, Susan and I were there celebrating our 20th. They have keychains with some very interesting paraphernalia attached to those keychains. That's all I'm going to say. Don't, if, don't, go, don't go home and Google that. <laughs> because the images will not be good. But the day Paul wrote this, Ephesus was like, what? So it's not like, don't have some sort of, a, in the words of C.S. Lewis, chronological snobbery. Like somehow in 2016, we're so advanced at this ancient world that we have to somehow redefine. The day Paul wrote this, all of Ephesus read it and they were like, are you sure that's what he meant? I'm supposed to be a one-woman guy? What? This is, a, this is really, are you for real? You know, you know this is Ephesus, right? Like that's what was going on. So Paul's like, no, 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 there's like a total reorientation kind of going on here. And that's why he goes into this, this, uh, this conversation further. In verse 4, he actually uses, he's like, don't let filthiness and foolish talking and jesting and joking. That's actually a unique phrase in Greek. It appears nowhere else in the whole New Testament. Some of the words he used there, it's, it's nowhere else. The reason is because he's saying, he uses this unique way of saying, don't be a Christian chameleon where you're so versatile with your morals that you just shift in shape to whoever happens to be sitting at the table. That's what he's saying there. So when he's saying filthiness and joking and jesting and all that, he's like, you just, there's kind of this Christian chameleon thing. Yeah, well, I'm not sure it really means that. We're like those things that you set out in front of the car dealerships that blow around. Woo! Well, maybe the text might have meant that, but after all, the Greek is confusing. That's not... No, Paul's like, don't, what are you doing? No, that's going to take you back to places you don't want to go. And that's why he appeals in such, in, in, in such a way to do that. He says, don't, don't do it. Don't have a Christian chameleon worldview. And, and that, doesn't, that doesn't mean we become hateful to culture and we become you know, some angry you know, fundamentalists. That's ridiculous. That's not the gospel at all. I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, so in verse 5, when he says, and this is where your heart goes into your feet, he says, anyone who's covetous or sexually immoral or idolatry, you know, they don't get the kingdom of heaven. And all of us would go, well, then I guess, I'll, I guess I'm done. All right? I have good news for you. What Paul is doing is he's contrasting, and he's not saying anybody who's committed these things, struggled with these things, all bets are off. What he's saying is, he's using the word, they are those things. That's how he constructed it. So what he's saying is, you are anyone who is worshiping, the created and not the creator, then I'm a part of the kingdom. And anybody who is, they are, their heart is full of the worship that manifests in these ways, they haven't placed their faith in Christ alone because they don't care about what God wants because they're their own God. So that doesn't, so those of you that are here struggling with these sins, there is grace for you. Those of you who are here, which is all of us, starting with the preacher, who've committed these sins, there is grace for you. There is grace for us. And what that grace does is it puts us on a reforming trajectory. The grace that rescued you is now reforming you. There's a reforming trajectory of this letter. This is the good news of it. Otherwise, there's no gospel. God rescued you out of this craziness, but he doesn't have any power to keep you out of it, so 
Just cross your fingers and wait till Jesus comes back and wallow around in your sin. That's, that's not the gospel. That's ridiculous. But neither is it, well, Jesus did his part, so pitter-patter, get at her, and have a holier-than-thou attitude. And put, stick our noses in the air and think we're better than the culture. That's ridiculous. That's not what Paul's advocating for at all. In verse 8, when he says, you were once darkness, now you walk you know, uh, as uh, children of light. In verse, verse 7, I'll back it up a bit, where he says, don't have any partnership with the world. The, the church has made a mess of this. I need to apologize for, on behalf of the church and preachers and ministers everywhere that have communicated that you have to somehow have this isolated kind of idea around the culture. That's not what Paul is saying. He, that's why he uses the word partake. He doesn't say don't be friends with him, don't hang with him, don't go out for a beer with him. He's not saying that. He's saying you can't, you can't engage in their worldview and live like they live and believe how they live and, and live free. That's what he's saying. It's this whole partaking. And so the reason why that's important is because the gospel frees us now to affirm the, our culture whenever we can and challenge it when we must. Because I don't care so much about what people think of me that I have to become a Christian chameleon. I can affirm the culture, love the culture, be engaged with the culture whenever I can and challenge it when I must. If the church over-contextualizes to the culture, we just become the culture. We lose the beauty and the freedom of the gospel. But if we under-contextualize the culture, then we isolate ourselves and become totally ineffective in the culture because we're judgmental and, and, and crusty and nobody wants to be around us because we're just better than everyone. That's insane. That's not what Paul is calling for at all. The gospel frees us from both of those ditches. You think about it this way. It's like Jesus says to the woman who was caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. The religious heart just chops off the front part and flips it around and says, if you don't sin anymore, God won't condemn you. It's like the reverse of what Jesus said. That's what the religious heart does. The rebellious heart chops off the sin no more, and the rebellious heart says, no condemnation, full stop the end. That's also not what Jesus did, because that wouldn't have been very gracious for him to have freed a woman out of a life of adultery. And they said, well, I hope you're probably going to go back and then lose her seventh husband. You're probably going to go back to some, find somebody tomorrow. Jesus is, Jesus, in one sentence, gives the scandalous, rescuing word of grace and the empowering, reforming word of grace. In one sentence, neither do I condemn you, full stop. Go and sit no more. Full stop. This is our attitude for the culture. We love the culture. We engage the culture. We enjoy the city. We live in the city. We love our friends. You go, you have a, 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 a go for drinks with your neighbor or whatever, if your conscience allows that. Okay? And you, and you enjoy, you enjoy the city without becoming it. This is Paul's, this is Paul's call. This is why he says, you were once darkness, now you're light in the Lord. It's not a divine guilt trip. It's a divine invitation. This is what he's saying. Right? This is what a heart electrified by grace is going to want to do. And I'm going to close with this thought. He goes on to this thing about exposing sin. He says in verse 11, he says, you know, expose it. He says, don't, don't give in to it, expose it. And again, I want to apologize for the church. And I want to apologize for ministers who've said exposing sin looks like, going, looks like we got a sinner here. Hey, hey. Hey, we found some sin over here. That, you think that's the tone of this exposing? You were a filthy, wretched sinner saved by grace. And Jesus scandalously saves you by grace, wipes your sin away as far as the east is from the west. No strings attached. 
This no strings attached forgives you. And you think now, after you wipe the sleep of death from your eyes, the next thing you're supposed to do is turn to somebody and be like, hey, we got a sinner here. This is your hermeneutical approach to the Bible? I want to apologize for every pastor, every preacher, every church that's communicated that exposing sin looks like that. I won't tell you what the, the text tells us what the tone is. Here's what exposing sin sounds like. It sounds like, Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine his light on you. It's a word of gospel. If you've been saved out of something by the scandalous grace of Christ, exposing sin looks like going to that person who's stuck in the same shyness that you were stuck in and saying to them, my friend, I have good news. You're working all day in a field that isn't going to produce any fruit. And who wants to do that? Unfruitful works of righteousness. Exposing sin is going in grace and in love and knowing that because I don't need everybody in the world to accept me because God accepts me, I don't mind exposing sin, like talking about the issue, but with a heart of grace. Because I was saved out of that myself. I'm not any better than you. I'm just forgiven. The church is full of forgiven sinners. We are the league of the guilty that has been saved by grace and are now called righteous. It's beautiful, and it enables us to go with great love and great boldness and great confidence, simultaneous confidence and humility into our city. And that's why Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, but be drunk with, with the Spirit. That's why he says that. This is not about drinking. Listen, if you have an alcohol problem, it's wisdom not to drink. If it's in your family and these kinds of things, of course, it's wise not to drink. But Paul's not advocating for this. If you enjoy wine, enjoy your wine, okay? If that bothers you and you're Baptist, I'm sorry. Well, not really. I'm not sorry. Okay, but it's just, if, if, you have a, if you have a problem with alcohol, stay away from it. It's unhelpful. But that's not Paul's point. That's not his point at all. It's not even close. What he's saying is, hey, Ephesus, you guys had a bunch of drinking songs. Well, I've got a new drinking song for you. And the new drinking song is, your sins have been forgiven. You are justified. You belong to Christ. Now live to the glory of the one who saved you. That's your drinking song. I'm going to close this sermon in 30 seconds. And we're going to have a drinking song. We're going to grab the cup and we're going to drink to the glory of the one who saved us. To the one who has forgiven our sin. Saved us from sin and death. To give us the boldness and, and, the, and, and, and the hearts to love our neighbors. And lovingly share that word of gospel. So that that word of arise and awake, O sleeper, and the light Christ was shining upon you. That was the light that shone on you, church. That's why you're sitting here. And that's the light that God, through his great grace, not you, does his beautiful saving work in, this, in, in our city. Christ justified us in grace so that God could be our Father, and the Spirit of Christ is sanctifying us by grace so that more and more we imitate our Father. Let's pray.